even if you are not on the same page or even if you don't agree or whatever that looks and feels like, just be kind in your thought process and be kind in your questioning because the world needs a bit more of that, I think. Hi, everyone, and welcome to 2023. This episode of the Wonderful People podcast goes live towards the end of Jan 2023. So I hope you've had a good start to the year for those doing dry January, for those doing um, fitness regimes, for those back in the workplace and just cracking on with the year. Really hope the year's been good for you. Starting the year can always be a little bit of a mixture of anticipation for the year ahead, but also apprehension. Nowadays, there seems to always be so much change, so many ups and downs. In fact, can anyone remember the last year we didn't have a major political or economic or socioeconomic event? I think the era of the quiet life might have gone for now. But in a climate of uncertainty and insecurity, those leaders who step into the unknown are the ones who often thrive. Just those people with enough conviction and confidence to take the next step take steps forward despite the surrounding circumstances are often the ones that that kind of make it and thrive and not just survive. Sarah Mortiboys is the head of program development for Premiership Rugby and is someone who has displayed this kind of leadership through challenging times in her personal life and in her career. And she's someone who I also really think leads through values, which is the best kind of leadership, I think. So no matter what 2023 has in store for you, no matter how your year has started, I really hope you enjoy this podcast episode. As always, please do leave us a review, let us know your thoughts, share this episode and subscribe to the podcast. Sarah Morty Boys, welcome to the Wonderful People podcast. So good to have you with us. Thank you. Lovely to be here at the beginning of 2023. Um, it is the first week back, so it's all a little bit... Woof, um, but um, but yeah, really good to be here. Thank you for inviting me to come and speak with you. We, we're still we're opening up the new year with the same question because it's always a cracker, we think. And Sarah, if you could be stuck in a lift with someone, who would it be and why? Oh, do you know, this is such a tricky question. And, um, and when I was thinking about it, I was thinking about, well, you know, would they be alive? Would they be dead? Would, would it be a family member? What would it, who would it be? And the thing that, and I suppose it's such a good opportunity, right? So you have to grab hold of that. So I think from my perspective, I'm really interested in the concept of first ladies. Um, and when I, when I say that, that sounds a bit contrived. But when I say that, I'm thinking about, you know, people like Jackie Kennedy, people like Michelle Obama, you know, women who um, are um, absolutely in their own right, have a, a huge place in society and a huge impact and potential to make impact, but are working alongside um, their, you know, their counterpart, their partner. Um, and I think for me, um, I am such a big fan of Jackie Kennedy um, and for not necessarily for, for um, the reasons that people would think, but I I really um, admire her way in which she navigated the adversity that she that she went through, and the way in which she positioned herself within society. So I think Jackie Kennedy into Jackie Onassis would be the person that I would 
really you know welcome that that conversation with and um and to be stuck in that lift with i think well i've not had that answer before (laughs) that was that was cool yeah i'm trying to visualize that lift i'm trying to think like is that is that like really deep and insightful and meaningful is it fun I don't know and I think I think it I think it would be you know I think it'd probably be a combination of the two I think um and you know it depends on the stage of of her life and where she is and whether it's post post assassination or pre-assassination or what that looks like but I um but I'm I'm really interested in her view of the world and and how she saw the world through her eyes and what that looked and felt like for her um and and how she um you know dealt with the challenges that she faced because I think there's probably an assumption with the way that she did and I'm not quite sure whether that's quite the case whilst we're sort of getting to know you a little bit describe yourself in three words I think I'm quite happy and joyful most of the time I think that's really important to approach life in that way um, without getting too deep and meaningful on a Friday morning so I think I'm joyful I think that I can be quite reserved and thoughtful so sometimes I tend to sit back and just watch and absorb the world around me and take some time to think about it I think that I would say probably quite direct and I think that we've got a limited amount of time in this world and a limited amount of time to to make a difference in in what we do and I'm kind of talking not just about work but the way in which we live our lives and we have a very short period of time a very short window um, to get to get things going and get things moving. And I would say that I'm probably quite kind of driven and quite direct by that. That's a multitude of words, actually. Um, so, you know, take the best three out of that. <laughs> <laughs> so with that direct and that kind of, you can see that motivation there, what is it that kind of gets you up in the morning there? What, what, what drives you and fuels you, apart from coffee maybe? Yeah, there is a lot of coffee involved in that. I certainly am a quite a heavy coffee drinker. And I think, you know, uh, my dog obviously gets me up in the morning. Um, uh, he's quite, quite demanding, little puppy. Um, but I think <laughs> in seriousness, what gets me up in the morning? I think we've got, we've got a lot to do. Um, and, you know, as I just said, we have a very short window of time here. And I always kind of say that I'd kind of like to leave this world a little bit better than when I came into it. And if I can do that in an incremental step day by day, then that can only be a good thing. So I kind of wake up with the initial, whoa, hang on a minute, not enough sleep, and I need coffee, and the dog is like, hi. But also, you know, I wake up with that, right, what are the things that I want to get done today so that we can move forward and have a bit more progress? So there's, there's still more to be done. That's what gets me up in the morning. Sarah, you've dedicated a huge chunk of your life and career to helping children Hmm. find confidence and aspiration through the power of sport. Tell us a little bit about that journey into education. So I didn't start in education um, in its in its traditional sense. Um, I started in youth work and that was really born out of my own experiences as a young person and the importance that, that those influential adults had on me, both through things like Duke of Edinburgh's Award and things like being part of my, my local youth centre you know, this is a quite a long time ago now, but but that was quite important to me, and those those people were very influential into my early in my early thinking and development as a young person. So I started in youth work and and worked in Birmingham for for a while, um, supporting young people, 
and then did what most people did at that time in terms of working in sport and went into local authority of when there was quite a lot of investment in in facilities um, and then the way that we delivered what was quite traditional community sport. So getting more people playing different and varied types of sport. And then kind of did, again, what most people do, or the opportunity came along to go and work with Sport England. And at that time you had, and that was under the tenure of Roger Draper, and at that time you had regional officers, and I was based down in the southwest in a tiny little place called Crew Kern, and worked in Sport England, both doing regional but also national work. And I found at that time that I was quite young then, you know, I was in my, you know, mid-20s, and I, I found that I was giving people advice about what they wanted to do with their lottery investment and, and how they wanted to work with young people. But I'd only done little snapshots of it. I'd only, I hadn't, couldn't really talk with too much gravitas or experience about how to work in that space. So um, I took the decision to leave and go into education, which was a completely different world, still through the lens of sport into PE and physical education, but wanted to understand much more about that early intervention into young people's lives and how that worked within the the institution of a school um, and what that looked and felt like. So I was in education for, um, in the traditional sense, in terms of becoming an assistant head and looking after pastoral care and using sport as a vehicle for not only educational attainment and improvement and attendance in school, but also to help these little people become reasonably well-rounded individuals so that when they did leave our care and go off into, you know, into the real world, into the big world, that they were equipped as much as they possibly could be with all of the, the skills and social awareness to enable them to go off and be the best people that they could be. And and I still really believe that. I think that schools are an incredibly important part of our societally infrastructure. They um, provide structure, support, and that wraparound care that, that young people need. And sometimes they don't necessarily get that anywhere else. And I think to have a really good, high quality education system is absolutely fundamental to what we do in society. And I wanted to learn from that and still learn from it, you know, still learn from um, working alongside schools and really getting an understanding of what the challenges are, how they deal with them, how they face them. And actually, ultimately, people in my position and others, how we can support and help that world be a little bit easier for them. Have you got any good stories from the children who've been under your wing across your career? Any little moments of magic that you can recall? Some of the best times in my career today have been when I worked in a school in Gloucester, and that's where I became assistant head. And I was very much looking after the journey of a particular group of young people who I started looking after in year seven and took them through to year 11. And you've got to remember that this is at a time when education had quite a lot of investment. It was really focused around the time of Every Child Matters. And therefore, schools were central to the development of young people in a way that perhaps that's changed a little bit now in terms of of the investment received. So my job was really to support their pastoral care so I wanted to give this group of young people as many uh, as many experiences as possible and invested quite a lot of myself and my time into that. So we did a whole range of things. But I think probably the one that really sticks in my mind 
And, and we're talking about quite challenging young people here. And the one that really sticks in my mind is when we decided that we were going to take them on a ski trip to Italy. Now, if there's any teachers listening or anybody that works in school listening, they will have a small, like, oh, my God, shivering moment that happens when you think about not only taking young people out of school, but also to a different country, and I think we approached it as a team in quite a kind of joyful way um, and, and, and in quite a, an empowered kind of way to get these young people from Gloucester to Pila in Italy and, and to help them to learn to ski. Um, and we were away for a week. We had 15 young people, all of which had quite substantial needs in terms of their behaviour. Um, and when I look back on it now... It was absolutely brilliant in terms of the impact that it had on them, but it makes me feel ever so slightly, wow, I'm so glad that nothing went wrong. <laughs> yeah. um, and really, I mean, we had a broken arm, we had some appendicitis, um, we had a conversation with a doctor about this appendicitis in broken Spanish because they couldn't speak English and I couldn't speak Italian, but we kind of met in the middle. And so there were all kinds of crazy things that happened um, to make sure that these young people were super safe and, and achieved loads when they were on the slopes in Italy. But that was a huge achievement for us as, as a school because it had never been done before. No one had ever said, why don't we really support these kids and help them do some amazing things and give them really amazing experiences that sit outside of the classroom. And at that time, you know, we just bit the bullet and we raised the cash and we did it and and that's just one of them I mean there's numerous things that I can think of that that really when I look back on it were just brilliant brilliant moments I I was uh I was getting anxiety just listening to that story <laughs> about taking these kids to Italy <laughs> to be honest with you Dan I didn't really think anything of it at the time but right. uh, but now when I look back I think yeah that was that was quite a thing <laughs> that was the thing yeah <laughs> Obviously, at the moment, you know, there's a big political drive, whichever colour party you choose around education. With that frontline experience with sport and education, the intertwining of the two, what is it? What's the change that you think that's needed and where does investment need to be focused? Because you mentioned earlier about, you know, there was a lot of investment in education a few years mm. ago. The belts are tight now, but it seems even post pandemic, it seems the need is huge. In that, in that area of engaging young people in life in general, but also in the area of sports. So what is, what's your sort of opinions and thoughts on that? I think we're in a really challenging period, and I know that that's quite easy to say, and, and, and we probably hear that quite a lot. We do hear that quite a lot. I think that, that schools um, are still the centre of their communities and, and, and always will be. And I think that there is such a shift in education around what the actual function is of a school and what the need is. And those two things aren't quite in lockstep with each other. And that's because what you've seen is huge swathes of cutting, both not just in terms of, of cold, hard cash, because clearly money does make the world go round, but, but also the infrastructure and support that sits behind that. So when I was in you know, frontline education, you had social services working really closely with the police, with school, and that whole wraparound system. Now, I'm not saying that that doesn't happen now, but I think that happens in spite of, not because of. And I think that in terms of investment, there isn't enough cash in the system. 
we, we know that, you know, when you talk to school leaders now, there are really three things that keep them awake at night. And that's the ability to respond to the pay award for teachers, because the pay award is, is huge, and they haven't got enough money in whole school budget. The fact that we are in a complete energy crisis. And, um, you know, we know that from our own domestic energy. But if you amplify that into a school environment, you've got head teachers who are turning off radiators in classrooms because they can't afford it. So it's it's that kind of stuff. And then when you marry that with actually what a function of a school is, which is to produce well-rounded individuals who go on to have great experiences in society, but their measurement is against results. And that's still the case. So I was in a conversation yesterday when we were talking about the development of, of physical education and school sport and what that means to a young person. But when you look at everything else that sits around that, so the cutting of playtime, the cutting of physical education allocation in the curriculum because of that pressure on results um, and because we're trying to squeeze more and more and more into the timetable. You know, you had an announcement from government this week of, well, we want young people to do more maths. Well, great. And I'm sure that will be great for society, perhaps. I don't know. But unless you've got really physically active and really mentally well young people, all of that um, future proofing is going to be really hard. And I don't know the answers to that. I don't. I think we, we need to be way more aware of what the challenge is and be really specific on what those wicked problems are. You know, how, how are we going to get into the real detail of making sure that we don't try and be everything to everybody, that we really focus in on those really big challenges and fix them so that we're not having the same conversation in another 20 years and another 20 years. And that's certainly something that's very much, I think, on the radar of, of people that, that work across the whole of the sports sector. As you were talking, I was thinking about my own experience, actually, with my two kids. One's in secondary school, one's in later years of primary school. And that the last two years of the COVID scenario, the lockdown changes, they both changed schools in those two years was hugely challenging with them mentally and emotionally. And you're seeing the teachers and the schools trying to balance and juggle everything, you know, online, offline, transitions, GCC option, I mean, all sorts of things. And then to see the role of sport and how that's really helped my kids. Both of them came out of particularly the first longer lockdown, both back into sports teams, and it accelerated their emotional wellness, their mental mm -hmm. well-being, their ability to make friends, it was really interesting to watch. It was like in my own household, seeing my kids get excited about sport, wanting to go to it, wanting to to kind of get back into something. And I think, you know, they're in a relatively privileged position to be able to do that. And I think for for young people, for children that don't have that, mm. what do they do? How do they how do they transition from you know that mental and emotional challenges we've all had in the last couple of years into being those productive members of society, as you said? And I think. Sport has such a big part to play, and I really do believe that. Not just team sport and football, rugby, cricket, but individual sports, exercise, work, you know, all of that side of things I think is so important. Yeah, and the way in which we provide that, making it accessible and open yeah. and easy for young people to participate in. And I'm not saying that we don't necessarily do that, but when you look at the, the results of the pandemic and how we're beginning to return back to the participation levels that we had prior to pandemic, the pandemic, 
there's still a long way to go. And there's not only a long way to go to provide those participation opportunities, but also to sustain those over a period of time. Right. And when you're looking at your big system change stuff, so when I say about those wicked problems, those big system change infrastructure challenges that we face, it's those that we've got to really get a grip of. Because for me, those are the ones that are going to make that longer term difference and, and really ensure that your children and their children's children and, and on and on and on um, go on to have really solid opportunities. And they're not just be by chance, um, but absolutely be by design. Sarah, how important is collaboration in the world of sport development? And, and have you seen some examples of great collaborative outcomes in your many roles? I feel like the word collaboration is really, I don't want to say overused, but it's got the potential to be. Collaboration is a massive contact sport. And I hear people talk about working together, working in participation, and therefore that's working in collaboration. And I would suggest that that's probably not the case. Working in collaboration is a long-term thing. Um, and it takes time to build the trust, the respect and the understanding that actually um, this means that there are going to be levels of compromise and there are going to be times when you do work closely together and then you don't. And that's OK. And I think that um, going back to, to those big ticket challenges that we face, those are the ones that I think that we will crack in terms of, of working together in collaboration. I mean, my time with the Sport for Development Coalition taught me a lot about what works and perhaps what doesn't and where the failure is there. And I think it's really good to highlight that and talk about that, um, of where there's success, but where there's also failure. Where I've seen brilliant success, and I think where we can amplify this and have a responsibility to amplify it, is where you have alliances groups of people coming together who understand and accept um, and welcome with open arms that actually by working together on a number of key things they're going to make much more progress and much more impact than they would in isolation and I think a key organization that does that for me is the Alliance for Sport in Criminal Justice. Now the Alliance um, is run by a great guy called James Mapston um, who is based down in the southwest actually in Bristol but is absolutely passionate about the difference that sport and physical activity can make across the criminal justice system so whether that's before you go into prison when you are in prison and when you're released um, in basic terms I mean he would question my terminology there <laughs> um, but yes. in basic terms that's what it means and and using sport as a vehicle in terms of prevention but also rehabilitation and re-establishment in the community now for me the collaboration that works really well there is that it's clear it has a common theme and a common outcome and and organizations can coerce around those you know, if you are working with young people who are at risk of perpetration of crime or at risk of becoming victims of crime, then you're going to be looking at that prevention space. And therefore, the alliance and the work that James does in terms of bringing those organizations together is focused on that common theme. And I think when you have that in place, that works really well because people don't get confused, right? They're all there for the same common outcome. And that's where I see collaboration working really well where I see it being a challenge is when 
it's again everything to everyone and nothing to no one it's trying to achieve too much and that's when I think collaboration is 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 not necessarily a force for good because you just get lost in the weeds of, of what you're trying to deliver what attracted you to the sort of role as head of program development at Premiership Rugby? I think rugby as a sport, in terms of not just in the in the, the actual gameplay, but rugby as a sport has the ability, as as lots of sports do, but for me, the ability through its values to bring together communities and bring together both participants, coaches, volunteers, leaders the people that run the club on the Saturday, all of that, that kind of stuff. And I think the values of rugby in terms of that, that sports personship, that respect, that discipline are really important. And I've seen those work not just within an education environment in terms of teaching rugby, but within a, a wider society lens um, when I looked after Delalio Rugby Works. And I think when the opportunity came for me at, at Premiership Rugby, I think what's really interesting about that world is that, I, I mean, I work for a private sector organisation. I work for a professional organisation that focuses on delivering professional sport. And what I'm really interested in is how we can use the power of the badge and the huge infrastructure and passion around professional sport and, you know, for me, rugby, to really help and change young people's lives. And I think that has a huge both opportunity and driver to do that. You know, if you look at, I live in Bath, and if you look at Bath, Bath is a huge rugby town. You know, there is, there is lots of sports here, but there's one sport, and that's the rec on a Saturday or a Friday night or whatever that looks and feels like. And whether you are a fan or not, when you're in Bath at that time, you know that there is a game going on. So it's, it's for me, the relationship between professional sport in a private sector world and how that then can go on to support societal development, specifically through young people. And that's what I'm really interested in from, uh, from coming into Prem and seeing what that looks and feels like. And then understanding how the clubs and the foundations really take those values and amplify those and how we as an organisation can, can support that and help it become the best that it can be. Are you enjoying our podcast? Remember to subscribe, share and leave us a review. I think it's fair to say that you did join at a pretty interesting moment in the life of of rugby in terms of both premiership rugby, club rugby, hugely tough economic climate, you know, in general. But that's had a direct impact on on rugby clubs. Obviously, you know, big names aside, that's had an impact at the grassroots level as well. What do you see as some of those kind of bigger opportunities, those more macro opportunities or changes that might be needed in order to sort of see the kind of vision that you've shared there come to pass, but also to, I suppose, move rugby into that next level of growth? I think that's that's a really hard question. I think for me, I mean, I did come in to Prem at a time when Worcester and Wasps went into administration. And with that brought huge stress, huge, you know, loss of loss of jobs, loss of career, loss of, you know, whole community infrastructures that sit around those clubs. And I think that what that did for me personally, having spoken to both organisations, is to really understand um, in terms of what I just said, then the power of rugby and its community, sense of community and its value in its community 
to really understand the role that that plays and actually how organisations like Prem, like the RFU and others have a role and responsibility to really help the sport become way more professional in its approach. And whether that's through really great, brilliant governance, whether that's through really great, brilliant use of investment, whether that's really understanding, going back to the comment about collaboration, whether that's about really understanding what good, solid collaboration looks like so that we can go from, and let's just remember, you know, that, that professional rugby is, is in its, effectively in its infancy it's not been a professional game for that long, if you think about you know, the, the way in which other sports operate. So it has got a bit of, and I don't want to use the word growing pains because that sounds as if it's, it's not as challenging as it is. It absolutely is. Um, but to understand the, the way in which the sport needs to grow, there has to be an appreciation for this is starting, you know, it, it's, it's developing. It's not the finished product. And for us to to really get under the skin of that, it's important for organisations like Prem and the RFU, as I say, and others to understand that and therefore really start to understand what needs to be put in place to take it to that next level. And for me, that is about that governance. It is about the collaboration. It is about ensuring that we've got best possible use of investment and really understanding where the commerciality comes in through that in terms of that lens but how that whole wraparound ecosystem within an individual club has got such a valuable place in, in the community in which it's based is, I guess, the short answer to what you asked. <laughs> I recognise it's a huge question. and there's, there's absolutely no silver bullet, but it's just really interesting because on a grassroots level, again, I'm, I helped to coach one of my son's rugby teams. And again, coming through the pandemic, the team struggled to even put you know, a team together because of the, the the circumstances around it. Coming through it now, we've got enough for two, two and a half teams. It's growing, it's scaling. But it's like, you know, looking at it on that grassroots level, you've got that engagement, but it's then you look at it from a macro level and you think, well, you know, who are the big clubs are aspiring to? Where are the big players are aspiring to? What does rugby look like in the next five, 10, 15 years? that keeps the next generation engaged in. And I, I suppose you can't compare rugby to football, but I think there is an interesting sort of evolution of professionalism in terms of brands or digital. And I think Phil wants to talk a little bit about that later. But yeah, seeing it from both sides mm -hmm. of the coin, that grassroots coaching and engagement level and that yeah. kind of fan level, you know, how do you, you know, where's the opportunity to take it to the next level? That's something I'm super interested in, you know, being involved in it myself. And I think there is no easy answer, but I think it's a really big, it's a really key question to answer because rugby is becoming a global sport. It is becoming more popular in many, many countries. We've got the World Cup coming up this year. And I think it's, yeah, just an interesting time, I think. It's an interesting time for, for your role, I can imagine, as well. Yeah, and I think there's something in the levels of connectivity between the grassroots game and what that looks like in terms of professionalism and the relationship between those two. And, and then weaving in um, rugby for good, so how you use rugby as a vehicle for social good and how you get that balance right. I think right. that there is definitely something around that connectivity and how we, we have a role to play. And that, for me, is about the power of the badge and how that really ignites that interest and that enthusiasm and that absolute 
you know, wanting to be at the game on a Saturday or wanting, you know, to watch the highlights or, or whatever, whatever engagement you have. And I think there's absolutely something about us understanding that journey much more and the connectivity of that journey. Um, and we certainly talk a little bit about and, and more increasingly um, within within Prem Rugby around the diversification of the game and what the face of the game looks like and, and how we, we can influence and inspire and advocate others to really build that within, to their, within their infrastructures of their own organisations. And Prem has definitely got a role to play within that in terms of how we do that and how we work with others to achieve it. But I think for me... The, the key the key to all of it and it does go back to that collaboration piece the key for all of it is to understand our place in the world and then really have the ability to collaborate with others towards making sure that our game which we all love to varying levels for lots of different reasons is really solid for the future and that is absolutely that key is working together stronger and being much more stronger in standing together than, than perhaps we have done previously. Are the Premiership Rugby using technology and data to its advantage in the team that you work in? I think the world of tech is one that we absolutely need to tap more into. I think there is huge amounts of work that is not, I think, I know, there is huge amounts of work that is happening across a sports science um, perspective um, in terms of understanding concussion better, understanding the sports, uh, sports science challenges that the game faces and that is from a definitely from a um, you know a practitioner's perspective when I think about when when we were delivering over in Gloucester and and teaching that's massively interesting to understand the sports science aspects of that and I know that, that that's something that that um, the team at Prem are working heavily on I think from our perspective in terms of community development for me it's much more about understanding collaborative data and that collective open data and where you can see um, real start to see real trends of impact and how we can amplify those and then really focus in on them for me that's absolutely essential so that's about how we have open data work with all of our clubs and foundations and what that looks and feels like I think there is absolutely something around um, uh, the world of social that that we haven't necessarily explored as much as we would want to and as into as much depth as, as we would want to and the way that that can not only drive the sharing of, of stories and advocating what actually happens out in the clubs and foundations from their perspective, but also how um, we can enable young people to really share with each other across huge platforms around what their actual interests are and how the game is important to them um, and how we can use that as a form of insight and intelligence to help inform the way in which we work in the future. So in answer to your question, absolutely, but there is still more to be done and more significant targeted work to be done. As someone who's had to be responsible for getting funding and garner support from those who can influence and trying to make a noise in, in a noisy space, how do you do it? And what do you believe is the magic ingredient? <sighs> magic ingredient. When I met you all that time ago, when the lights went out in Soho for lunch, mm-hmm. I think you were working then with Lawrence Delalio. Yeah. And that was very much like trying to raise funds to, to help mm-hmm. people. So what is the magic ingredient? Come on, Sarah. 
<laughs> what is the silver bullet? <laughs> I think there are there's a couple of things here, right, with with fundraising and funding in general. And I've just taken on the or just been invited to be a part of the board at Access Sport, which is a, a large national charity that does exactly what it says on the tin, providing access to sport for for children and young people from disadvantaged backgrounds. And we were having this conversation as a as a you know as a part of the trustee kind of induction. I think for me, the silver bullet or silver bullets um, in terms of fundraising, the first one is around relationship. So people buy from people, right? When you go and buy something in a supermarket, when you go and buy a car, when you buy a house, you know, there are elements of in that decision making that are based on experience and, and reality and need. But if you like the person, then that's half the battle. And I think with fundraising, if you have great relationships with your funders, you know, whether that's big funders like Sport England or, or tiny trusts and foundations, if you take the time to formulate relationships that are not based around we want your money, but are based around these are the outcomes that we would like to achieve and these match with yours, how about we work together? I mean, it that's a much softer, more collaborative conversation than we want £20,000, please give it to us. So I think there's definitely something around relationship. There's definitely something around what I just alluded to there in terms of common theme. There is a real danger sometimes that organizations go way too broad in their scope. You absolutely have to avoid mission creep, but you need to have a balance between um, being true to your mission, but also making sure that that mission is agile and that it does respond to the changes and needs of society around you. So there is absolutely something about that agility and flexibility in your approach. And then I think for me, there is definitely something about the way in which you diversify your funding. A lot of organizations that I've seen across the years in terms of, of sport for development and others around fundraising have been very focused on this is where we get our cash from. And that's kind of how it always has been, what it is now, and what it always will be. And there's a real danger there that you become too over-reliant on one particular funder. And, you know, I've seen numerous organizations go to the wall, not because of what they're doing is not great, but they just run out of cash. Yeah. And, and those to me are the, are the real three things, relationship, making sure that you're delivering with agility and flexibility and that you have diversification in your approach. Um, and that all sounds really easy. Um, but I think if you keep those things in your mind's eye, the success on that is going to be greater than if you don't have a strategy that's wrapped around that. You're an advocate of great content and the importance of storytelling to engage. How do you use social media to increase awareness and advocacy? You know, what works and what doesn't? I think it's such a blend, right? In the, and when I think, when I was thinking about this question, I was thinking about what are the things on social media that, that I get? interested in how do I get hooked in you know because I you know sit on Twitter and I read you know continual relationship with my phone and all of the, the stuff that goes with it but I think for me it's a combination it's a combination of, of real inquiring intellectual thought and when I say that what I mean is a bit of personal insight so giving a bit of yourself but not too much there is a definitely a balance to strike there between real insightful questioning and personal view, because personal view can be sometimes 
not quite what you want to share, but it comes out in that way. And therefore, it doesn't necessarily land in the way that you would want it to. But I also think there's something about being a bit fun and a bit lighthearted and a bit joyous in the way that you do it. And actually celebrating great stuff that has happened. So whether, you know, that's the, I don't know, that your your children have had a, a brilliant rugby match and that link is linked back to your passion within the world of sport that you sit in. So I think a combination of that thought process, that kind of inquiring thought, but also having a bit of fun with it makes it much more engaging from just from my perspective. Interesting point there. Do you, slightly segue question, do you think there's a role for within Premiership Rugby for actually some of the key mm. names and personnel involved to really be telling stories? Because I know I have noticed and looking again, I suppose, fan view in looking at some of the stories that are being told from a more national scale you know the Carl Sinclair's the Ellis Genges those sorts of people from different backgrounds different opinions that are beginning to share more stories personal brand content do you think that's that's part of what you're saying you know actually being able to engage with players more yeah massively I think that if you, um, I mean, it's a stock phrase, isn't it? But I absolutely believe it. If you, you know, if you can see it, you can be it. And I think that that there is, there is absolutely something around making our and helping our really top flight successful players really accessible. And I think rugby does that quite well. I think that there is, because of the values of the game, I think it, it does, it has the potential to do that really well. And I think there are great steps being made in terms of, of making sure that that is really embedded within in the work that we all do. And, you know, when certainly when I was um, working in Gloucester, you know, we had a great relationship with, with Gloucester Rugby Club. And it was really important to actually take, not only take the kids to a game, but get the first team down to school and get them working alongside the young people, get them talking to them about how the journey that they've been on in terms of becoming a professional player, but also what the values that they held to enable them to do that. And I I absolutely am a massive believer in that if you can see it, you can be it. And there is a a huge, huge level of responsibility to, to weave that into the work that we do, I think. So in answer to your question, yeah. Sarah, we've kind of uh, meandered through your career and, and, you know, between education and sport and, you know, fundraising and not-for-profit. I mean, there's a lot there. And you've obviously, as you said right at the beginning, you've got a long way to go, you know, in terms of what you want to do. But looking back at your career to date, what are some of the moments that have really stood out? Or, you know, maybe some of the ones that have sort of helped to shape your career and, and even life? Yeah. Within a working context, I think... Being in a school environment for all of the challenge that it had, and I, I do look back on it with, with absolutely with rose-tinted spectacles, it was incredibly hard and, you know, caused some significant challenge in my personal life, for sure. No doubt about that, and um, because I put it above everything else. But it, it helped me really become the person that I wanted to be in terms of of the work that I do. And because I've had that experience of working very closely with young people, very closely with with all of those who support and help them develop, whether that's teachers, um, coaches, support workers, what that whatever that might look and feel like, I feel that I um, can absolutely talk with conviction, with credibility, and in some cases, you know, authority around what is 
great and what's not so great and what we could do better and what we couldn't do better. And I've definitely learned lessons from that, you know, definitely learned lessons about the what is successful and what could not is not necessarily as successful as it could be. So I think definitely being in the heart of it and and being, you know, frontline coalface stuff, I think is really important. And I think that really helps when we're trying to work around whole system change, because that level of experience is just really beneficial to help come up with the best possible solution and to really talk about, again, where the pitfalls are and where things haven't been so successful. So I definitely think school was a was a really good environment for me to do that. I also think there's been and continues to be great people that you meet along the way. And for me, there's probably been about three or four individuals that I've met along the way, whether they've been colleagues that I've worked with or, or line management or CEO level, who I've really taken quite a lot of inspiration from and have really helped me think. There was an incredible head teacher that I worked with um, when I came up to London in 2012, who was extremely, I never, ever heard him shout, ever. He did this amazing technique in teaching, which I've used for, for years since and using my professional life now, which is I just speak a little bit quieter. Because when you speak quieter and you don't have to have this big voice, people really have to listen because they really want to hear what you're trying to say. And I saw him do that with hundreds of young people. And it's something so simple, but so important. And he had a phrase of always be kind. You know, if you're, if you're kind, even if you are not on the same page or even if you don't agree or whatever that looks and feels like, just be kind in your thought process and be kind in your questioning because the world needs a bit more of that, I think. So that type of nuggets that I've picked up along the way and, and still continue to do so are really important because it helps you shape your approach and deal with huge levels of frustration that you get because you want to change the world now. And, and that takes, you know, that takes time. Can I ask you what's been the biggest challenge that you've had to overcome personally and what did that teach you? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, for me, there's probably been the biggest challenge that I've ever faced um, is that I had breast cancer when I was 32. And that for me, um, as anybody who's experienced that type of, of life-changing event, was hugely challenging and came, you know, on the back of, of moving on from into a different role within education and came out of the blue no no warning no nothing you know had to deal with that straight away and when you're faced with something that is you know technically life or death (laughs) without being overly dramatic it is you really have to switch your mindset and you have to do it quite quickly because there is a ticking time thing you know it's not going to go away and if you don't do anything about it it's not going to end particularly well So I think for me, that taught me, um, and I talk about, sometimes I talk about myself before breast cancer and afterwards. And I think the Sarah before might not have liked that much. You know, she was probably very driven, um, you know, real focused at all costs. Whereas the Sarah afterwards, I would suggest is more resilient, kinder, more joyful, 
more open to life, more understanding of her place in the world. And I think that experience has given me all of that. And it's given me things and I would never change it, even though it could have had a very different outcome. And it was incredibly challenging at the time and actually continues to to be so. You know, you never really forget that you were in that world ever. And any any cancer patient or someone who has been through that experience will tell you that it never really leaves you. I think for me, I would never take that experience back, never and I always say that, you know, that's led me to be where I am now. It's all part of part of my journey. But it was definitely the the biggest the biggest bomb for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, thanks for sharing that, Sarah. And final question, which, you know, I've got loads of things I want to still talk about, but we haven't got time. So final question, what's one of life's complexities you'd like to see made simpler? God, that's really hard. (laughs) One of life's complexities. I think, can I change that question? (laughs) Yeah, of course. Yeah, one of the things that I would like to see disappear, I think, is probably and that, and that kind of and if this thing disappeared then maybe um life would be less complex is i think and i've talked a bit about this and it's it's i think it's such an important thing i'd just like people to be less unkind you know and i think yeah. if people were really a lot nicer to each other we all work really hard right we all have loads of stuff going on in our lives whether that's I don't know whether that's taking kids to school or whether that's walking the dog or whether that's highly complex jobs or everything else that goes with it we all have a lot to balance and sometimes the stress levels go through the roof I know that mine certainly do and I just think that if we were all just a bit more understanding of that and a bit more you know, a bit kinder to each other and, you know, that kind of stuff. Like having a conversation with someone in my local shop and saying hello to people and all of those kinds of things, which I guess people raise the eyebrow to and go, well, that's a bit fluffy. But I just think it makes the world a nicer place. I used to do this thing. I'll finish with this. I used to do this thing when I lived in London, which is, which when I describe it sounds quite weird. But um, when I moved to London, I got rid of my car. So, and, and when I was driving to work normally, I would let two people in on the way to work and let two people out when I was driving home. So if I saw someone at a junction, I'd wave them out, right? And I didn't have that in London because I got rid of my car. So I decided that on my tube journey to work, I would speak to two people in the morning and speak to two people on the way home, which how I understand as someone that lived in London for 10 years is quite weird. (laughs) 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 Really weird. But I would make it my absolute, my tube journey from West to East London was an hour, right? So I'd give myself an hour to do this, to absolutely make it happen. And I did it for about eight, nine years. And I really enjoyed it. And I met some of the most amazing people. And not people that were friends for life or anything like that but met people along the way that had great stories and just were actually really happy for someone to say hello and I think if we did that a little bit more then maybe the world would be a bit happier oh Sarah for as as it starts off to 2023 that was a lovely way to sum it all up and Dan and I we could be your first two people that you spoke to on the way in yay what a great privilege (laughs) (laughs) thanks Sarah that was brilliant
Thank you for tuning in to the Wonderful People podcast. This podcast was brought to you by Wonderful Creative Agency. Find out more at thewonderful.co.uk.